Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Just come out of a series entitled Unbelievable, and it truly was an unbelievable series. I don't know how it was for you, but that was the reality for me. And so today we are going to do something by way of follow-up to Unbelievable. We begin a series today entitled Understandable, and our focus is this book to talk about Scripture. Now, we have something that we have planned, something that we're going to pilot during this series that's going to be an important element of exactly what it is that we're trying to do here in this place in terms of our mission and our purpose, and that is grow groups. Small communities of people coming together to interact with one another around the Word of Scripture and following the pattern that we're going to unfold during this sermon series. So I have a couple of colleagues who are going to work with me, with you, with all of us in this endeavor. So Joel Royer is the one who led our charge, was our point person in the Unbelievable series, and she will be part of this, and Miguel Mendez. Uh, who is someone who helps us study and understand Scripture, is going to be part of the understandable curriculum. If you would like to be a part of this, we hope that you will do so. It's a pilot project, and so we don't have a lot of room in this. So if you want to be a part of it, you're going to have to sign up very soon. We have a number of groups that will be starting, You can go to our website, to Understandable, click on the link, and sign up. I think you will find it will be a life-changing kind of experience. Understandable. So what is this book? This book I hold in my hands has been believed and belittled. It has been loved and scorned. It has been accepted and rejected. In fact, countless people have given their lives to see this book promulgated, translated, taught, read, understand, and experienced. And yet the question is, please bring the boards on up. The question is, what exactly is this book? What is it? How are we we to understand it? And how is it to influence and impact our lives? Now, there's a scholar that I first encountered when I was working on a doctor of minister degree down at Fuller Theological Seminary named Greg Ogden. Years ago, Greg Ogden wrote a book entitled The New Reformation. His premise was this. In the Middle Ages, during the Dark Ages, Bibles were chained to churches. They were chained within churches. Part of the reason of that, it is believed, was to keep the Bible from being stolen and sold and have somebody make a a lot of money off of it. But the deeper reason for that was the belief that this book, written in the language of the church of the day, translated into that language, could only be read and interpreted by the clergy. In other words, as lay individuals within the body of Christ, you could not read it and understand it among the many important realities that the Reformation addressed, one of them was the priesthood of all believers and the fact that in the body of Christ, 
We, every one of us, we have access to the Word of God. That was part of it. But Ogden's premise was, today, we need a new Reformation. Because now the Bible, in his premise, is chained not in the church, but in academia, in seminaries, in institutions of higher learning, where it may be unintentionally, and I have profound respect for such institutions. I've given my life to learn. But unintentionally, it has been communicated that you can't read and understand it. The Bible needs to be unhooked, unchained, and placed back in the hands of the people. Now, that's especially important here at Loma Linda University Church because of our purpose. You see this on our masthead. You see this on our website. You see it on any kind of literature that comes out that our central purpose is growing disciples. If you haven't seen that, it's likely you haven't been looking because it's everywhere. But the question is, do we understand what that means and how that happens? So that word disciple, you can put some other words in there that we might be a bit more familiar with. Words like apprentice or pupil or follower or learner. And that a disciple of Jesus is one who follows Jesus. It's a lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus. That's what we're about. We love it that you come to worship with us. We love having you as members of our congregation. But that's not our ultimate end game. Our end game is a vibrant, thriving community of people who are on a lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus. That's discipleship. So how does that happen? We have said it happens in four ways. First, it happens in worship. Not just a worship service, but a life of worship. Romans 12, 1, when we give our whole selves to God, that's our act of spiritual worship. Ordinary life becomes worship. It happens in worship. Second, discipleship happens in Bible study and prayer. In other words, when we sit down with the Word of God, we open our hearts and our minds and our will to what it says and ask for His presence, that's an act of deepening. Worship is an act that takes us up. Bible study and prayer is an act that grounds us, grows roots deep. Thirdly, community. We believe deeply that in the New Testament, the church of Jesus was a communal church. There wasn't a sense of an individual solitary follower of Jesus. They did it in community. And that's what we desire to do as well. And then finally, service. Now, we've divided service into two different kinds of service. The first is needs-based, and the second is word-based. Needs-based service is Matthew 25. It's when we reach out to the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, the naked, and we give of what Christ has given us to sustain, to support, to help, to change their lives. Word-based service is when we ask God, God, this word that you have planted within me, this word of the gospel, how can I share that with others? How can I share my experience with Jesus? Our premise is that if you're a growing disciple, you will be involved in these four ways in an ongoing way. And you just grow. 
when you're doing these kinds of disciplines. This experience, what we're doing now in this series and in the grow groups, especially addresses two elements of this. Bible study, because that's what we're going to do in this series, try to understand how we can understand the Bible, and community, doing it with brothers and sisters in Christ. So while this is, I believe, an important series because it will help us all to grow, it's also a very specifically pointed series toward our purpose as a church community. Now a question for you. I think it's actually a pretty vital question. And that is, when it comes to Scripture, we need to understand what Scripture is. Or more specifically, how it came to be, how it was written, how it was inspired. The reason that's so important is that how I understand Scripture to have been inspired will lead to how I read it. How I read Scripture will lead to how I understand it. How I understand Scripture will lead to how I live it. How I live Scripture will lead to how I treat others, how I interact with God, what my life looks like. All the way back here, though, it begins with, what does it mean that it was inspired? We heard in our Scripture passage this morning, so well read, two different passages from Paul and from Peter. Was God breathed? Wasn't something somebody made up? What does that mean? What does that look like? So here's my question for you. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not trying to lead you out on a limb and then saw it off. But I do want you to answer this in your heads because this will reveal something to you about how you understand how this book came to be. So I want you to answer this in your heads. In your understanding, in your concept, of how the Bible writers were inspired. Did the Bible writers more resemble court reporters or did they more resemble news reporters? Now, again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to think about the question. When Peter, when Paul, when Luke, when Isaiah, when whoever wrote, when those people were inspired and they wrote, were they more like court reporters or news reporters? My sister, younger sister, Mary Ellen Weingartner, worked for years as a court reporter. She's moved on to other things now, but in those years, I used to be not too short of in awe that she could sit here with this little machine, while all of this is happening, sometimes in very high-stress environments, in courtroom cases that were tense, and she's just sitting there looking around and doing something on this little machine, at the end of which she would produce a transcript of what had happened. It's like, what on earth? How do you do that? I need that. I need that for when those good ideas come, when I'm, you know, middle of the night. Oh, there's a great sermon idea. The next morning, I can't even remember it. And here she is just recording. Court report. In a sense, if, if you're a court reporter, the word dictation becomes very important. 
It's kind of verbal, word by word. Sometimes the judge will say, could you read back the testimony of the last five minutes? And there the court reporter reads it back. Court report. News report. Now, that's a different thing. And in our day and time, that's a loaded term. But here in the ideal sense, so put away all the political machinations and all the anger and all the division, and just think of it in the ideal sense, a news report. There's been a crash on the 10 freeway. A fire has erupted. Tragically, there's been a fatality. And the news vans appear. The police hold them back. They don't allow them to get close. Traffic everywhere. And a news reporter soon is standing in front of a TV camera with a microphone and reporting what happened. Now, about 20 yards over there, there's another news reporter reporting what happened. And on the other side of the freeway, there's another news reporter reporting what, ha reporting what happened. Now, one of the things we know as viewers and listeners is... In the ideal sense of the term, put fake news aside for the sake of the illustration. Because <laughs> I know I could, yeah, I'd be in real trouble with both sides of the aisle. Managed to make everybody mad today. That's not my intent. Just for the sake of the illustration. We know, okay, what the three, four, five different reporters said is all true. They reported the, the general facts of what happened. But we know we're getting that through a human person. It is affected by who they are. There is something in that report that while factually accurate is also very human. So, don't raise your hands. No limb to saw off here. But do answer that because that will be very telling to you. In my understanding, of how inspiration worked in Scripture. The writers of the Bible were more like court reporters or more like news reporters. You have your answer? All right, we're going to a text. We're going to a text, and we'll come back to your answer to that question in a bit. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. I'm going to read a four-verse passage, read it through one time, and then we're going to come back and uh, a few words at a time, we're going to dissect a bit of what Luke has to say here. So Luke chapter 1 says this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully invested everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Very revealing passage. If you want to answer that question, this has to be part of your answer. So let's kind of back up and take it just a little bit at a time. Let's start again with verse 1. Many have under... Wait, 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 wait. What? Many. Many. Now, that's curious. Because if we were to take Luke seriously here, which we certainly do, he's saying, I'm not the first one. I'm not the only one. 
He doesn't say three others by the names of Matthew, Mark, and John. He says many. Many have undertaken. The reality of Jesus of Nazareth has swept over the land. It has turned the religious world upside down. No wonder people are drawn in. And Luke says many have undertaken. All right? So whatever else it means... He's not alone in doing this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things. We're still back in verse 1 to look for the second phrase. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us. Many have undertaken, and now he says, just as they have been handed down down. That's a curious statement. Because Luke is writing in a largely oral world and oral culture. Largely a world in which many could not read. And because of that, the oral nature of the culture was exceedingly important. And when something like this, something this important transpired, People begin to tell the stories, and they begin to hand those stories down to others. So what Luke is essentially saying, we'll understand it more in a moment, but right at this point, he's already saying, I wasn't there. I wasn't a part of it. It's been handed down. But it doesn't stop there. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So first of all, you have eyewitnesses. When Luke is writing, there are people still living who saw the Christ event, who were there, who participated, who heard his words, who watched his actions, who benefited from his ministry. They were eyewitnesses. And, Luke says, servants of the word. That's an interesting, an interesting Greek word. The Greek word is huperetes. Accurately translated, servants, servants of the word in this case. But there's something interesting and unique about that term. There is some evidence to say that servants of the word, huperetes, were those individuals who committed to memory, to memory, the stories, sometimes the scripture, such as the Old Testament scripture who committed large amounts of it to memory and would recite it. Just as a brief aside, this may be why Paul was so upset with John Mark when he deserted him and Barnabas on their missionary journey. Remember that? And then later when they're going to go again, Barnabas says, we've got to take him. Paul says, absolutely not. I'm thinking, loosen up, Paul. Everybody has a problem at times. But John Mark was a huperetes, which may signify that on their journey, instead of having this to read, John Mark stands up and becomes the living word for Paul, who tells it from memory. And now Paul preaches it. And Paul says, I'm not being left without a Bible on my next trip. No way. Not doing that. 
So here Luke says, where did we get this? We got it from eyewitnesses, people who were there, and we got it from people who have committed it to memory. They know the story. They recite it. Okay? We continue. With this in mind, verse 3 now, since I myself, now this, I don't know, it's hard for me to choose which ones, but this may be the most stunning pair of words in the whole passage, although the next one is almost more so. Since I myself have, what, what does it say? Carefully investigated. I myself have carefully investigated. I don't know about you, but that kind of has the feel of good, solid scholarship. Somebody who asks questions of eyewitnesses and huperetes, somebody who carefully investigates, asks questions, tries to understand, tries to put it all together. I carefully investigated, okay, that's what he says there in verse 3, everything from the beginning and now comes the word that I'm telling you, it just may be the hardest one to, to kind of digest. I too, what? Decided. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. What do you mean, Luke? decided that doesn't quite fit my understanding of inspiration when I think of inspiration I think of, of, of John on the Isle of Patmos for whom suddenly bam the heavens open he sees heaven and earth and beasts and seas and peoples we spent weeks on that last August and September that's inspiration a vision, a dream that transforms his life, which he then records. That's inspiration. Or the two passages we've read for Scripture reading. God breathed, the Spirit moving upon them. Or even, <laughs> how about Jeremiah? No, 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 I don't want this. No, 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 absolutely, I don't want to do it. No, I mean, God, you're forcing me. I don't even want to do it. It's inspiration. And Luke says, I decided. Wow. That's a little tough to digest. I've done careful research. I've talked to everyone involved. I've put things together. I've made notes. And now I have decided. Moved by the Spirit. Luke is every bit as much inspired as his revelation. On John, that God-breathed inspiration washes over him, and he is caught up in it. In Jeremiah, he is moved by the Spirit, kicking and screaming the whole way. And Luke, kind of true to his scientific 
background, such as it existed in the world of his day, as a physician, investigates and decides and writes, and there it is in Scripture. Wow. Carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I, too, decided to write. Now, here's another curious word. I'm running out of room here, but I'm going to put this in a different color. I, too, decided to write, what's that word? An orderly account. What are you saying, Luke? Saying Matthew, Mark, and John? That's just chaos over there. Let me give you the real, here, here it is. I'll tell you how it really happened. I'll give you the outline. I, too, decided to write an orderly account of what happened. I would suggest to you that what Luke is saying may simply be this. What I have written here is not just a listing of facts in chronological order. What I have written is thoughtfully constructed, giving evidence of the writer's craft So if you're going to understand it, you're going to have to pay attention to that. That's why many many times we've been reminded that the Gospels are not chronologies of the life of Christ. Here's the order of events. They are rather theologies of Jesus of Nazareth. They are rather trying to paint a portrait And they each paint a different portrait of who Jesus is. One of my favorite ways of saying this is you have those who say, Matthew will tell us what Jesus taught. And Matthew's gospel is very much built around the teaching of Jesus. Mark will tell us what Jesus wrought. Because Mark is active. One of his favorite words is immediately. And immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Slow down, Mark. It's what Jesus did, what he wrought. Luke, then, will tell us who Jesus sought. Because it is in this gospel that we have stories that appear nowhere else. Like the Good Samaritan. What do you mean, Good Samaritan? The Good Samaritan is there. Zacchaeus is there. The prodigal son is there. Women are there. Outcasts are there. This is who Jesus sought. And John tells us what Jesus thought. There is no place that you will see the heart in the mind of Jesus on more full display than in the Gospel of John. They all paint a picture. So when Luke says, I decided to write an orderly account, it's very thoughtful. Finally, I decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know, one more word, the certainty, the certainty of what you have been taught. That word. He does something that a lot of biblical writers don't do, and that is he tells us just outright, this is my purpose in writing. I am writing so that you can know with assurance, with security, with certainty that you haven't been the victim of fake news. This is what happened. You may know the certainty of what you've been taught. John does this too, by the way. Over in John 20, 31, he says, Jesus did all other kinds of signs. I suppose if we wrote all those, the world itself wouldn't contain the books. But these have been written so that you may believe. And that's his whole purpose in writing, to bring you to belief.
Now, so what does that mean? Court reporters? News reporters. We have friends, Christian brothers and sisters, who will say every single word of the original autographs, the original, the first manuscripts, are inspired and inerrant without any mistake or difference. Luke might have some issue with that. We're Seventh-day Adventists. So it might be curious to ask the question, one of our key founders, Ellen White, what were her thoughts on this? Now, there's a whole section in First Selected Messages where she deals with these issues. I've just chosen two. I, I had a hard time deciding which ones. But here are two pieces of that that I've chosen. Notice this. This is the first one. The Bible is not given to us in superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is Just to be clear, this has not been edited. This is what it says. <laughs> Imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There's not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. Court reporter says to the judge, I, I can't read that back, Your Honor, because I got several different words for what he just said, and that's a key part of this case. Second Ellen White quote, the Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God, not, God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine will is combined with the human mind and will. And thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. Now, if you're anything like me, you're feeling a little bit jittery about right now because you say, okay, well then, how do we understand this book? Here's the Seventh-day Adventist position, that Scripture is infallible, different from inerrant, infallible, in particular in showing to us the way of God's salvation and work with his people. You utterly can depend on it for that. Utterly. It is that on which I have based not my life, but my eternity. Every day I'm in this book and just pray that God continues to form me according to his will. Is it a book of science, a book of history, a book of medicine, a book of geography? It includes all of those. But it is a book of salvation. Amen. That's what it's driving toward. So what are the implications? I want to give you three implications and one assignment. 
Implication number one, pray. Pray. We believe, I believe, this book is inspired by the Spirit. So when I approach this book, my prayer is, God, through the Spirit, you inspired it. Now, through the Spirit, please illuminate it. Allow me to see what you want me to see in this book. That's implication number one, pray. Implication number two, read. I mean, I hate to be so obvious, but read. Now, I am sympathetic to some who say I have the hardest time reading. Then listen. There is a wealth of material audible in all kinds of versions to listen. That's the way Scripture was experienced by most in the beginning anyway. But one way or the another, another immerse yourself in it and read full sections, not just anthologies. There's little pieces here and there. It is impossible to get the full message of Scripture in that way or of any individual writer. The old story, you've heard it, the man who every day his habit was, God, please lead me to a text. He would open it, and that's what he would read. Open it, read, Judas went and hanged himself. No, 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 no. Okay, God, please. That isn't what I'm looking for. Try this again. God, please, please. Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. No, 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 no. That is not the way. Read sections, not anthologies exclusively. So that's the second implication. The third one is really what this whole series is all about, and that's interpret. Interpret. That's what we're going to spend much of our time on in the coming weeks. So here's the assignment. Your assignment is read. You can also insert the word listen to. Read the Gospel of Luke throughout this series. Every principle we will consider, every week we will look, we will be in the Gospel of Luke. So read the Gospel of Luke. Now, one of two ways. If you want to really enter into this, read the Gospel of Luke every week, over again, throughout this series. If you say, I don't have the time, I'm not sure I'm there yet, then read three chapters of the Gospel of Luke each week as we move through. And as you read, as you read, pray, God, show Jesus to me. I want to see him, to experience him in a new and living way through Luke's eyes. So as a way to just etch that into our hearts, I'm going to ask you no big thing, just the response of our hearts. Would you sing with me, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in 
Lord, we're turning our eyes on you. Through the power of your spirit, illumine what you inspired. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.